The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online for this very special research showcase, Voices of the Past, which is celebrating the remarkable achievement of the 1641 Depositions Project. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. To those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Trinity Long Room Hub is the center point for the world leading research that is carried out by the arts and humanities community here in Trinity. It's where we coordinate all kinds of innovative scholarship and interdisciplinary research right across the fields of literature and language, uh, law, history, philosophy, religion, the classics and the creative arts. And the Hub is also the platform for our work in public humanities. It's a place for us to ask questions about how our research can address and benefit the society in which we live. In 2020, the iconic Trinity Long Room Hub building, which is right at the heart of the Trinity campus, has marked its 10th anniversary. And it seems fitting to me that we share that birthday with the 1641 Depositions Project launched a decade ago. The Depositions Project has given us in digital form the stories and testimonies of the violent rebellion that began in Ireland almost 380 years ago. But it's also given us a unique educational resource for thinking about the political and social and religious contexts of the last 10 years in Ireland and beyond. So I'm genuinely proud that the Trinity Long Room Hub is part of this evening's showcase at which we're going to proudly launch the revamped 1641 Depositions website and also herald the welcome publication later this month of the remaining Irish Manuscript Commission volumes of the Depositions themselves. If you follow the chat, you'll get details of, uh, of those sites. Uh, please do, if you're on Twitter, use the hashtag hub at 10 or hashtag hub matters. And we'll also make sure those details uh, get across to those joining us on our Facebook live stream and to our transatlantic friends uh, who are joining us on Irish Central. More important, uh, tonight's showcase will let you hear from some of the people involved in this extraordinary venture, including one of the visionary principal investigators who led the research team, Professor Jane Olmeyer. Uh, Jane Olmeyer is Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity. Many of you will also know her as my predecessor as the former director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, and she's also chair of the Irish Research Council. So Jane will lead this evening's discussion, but before I hand over to her, let's have a look at a short video clip about the 1641 Deposition Project. So the 1641 depositions are amongst the most controversial manuscripts in Irish history, and that's saying something. 
an incredible archive that came to Trinity College Dublin in 1741, 100 years after the rebellion of 1641 broke out. They comprise about 8,000 witness testimonies of what allegedly occurred in the aftermath of the outbreak of rebellion on the 22nd of October 1641. They're an extraordinary archive in that they give us the most incredible detail about the alleged massacres, um, uh, ethnic cleansing, atrocity, mass killing, but also real insights to life in colonial Ireland. Uh, they're controversial because they record the massacres um, and the, the mass killing uh, that uh, accompanied the rising of 1641. But they also are an extraordinary archive because they provide these incredible insights to life in colonial Ireland. They're controversial as well because they are really the voices of the Protestant settler community. Uh, Irish Catholics who experienced comparable atrocity and violence at the hands of uh, state-funded uh, soldiers uh, sadly didn't have an opportunity uh, to record uh, uh, the violence that was um, uh, deployed against them. In 2010, we published the transcriptions of the 1641 depositions online and the Irish Manuscripts Commission over the course of the past decade has been publishing these volumes, beginning with Ulster, and uh, 12 volumes will have appeared by the autumn of 2020. So all of a sudden we have a body of big data for the 17th century that can really be exploited thanks to technology in ways that were just previously unimaginable. So I actually think the full potential of the depositions remains to be fully realised. Uh, everybody. Uh, Eve, thank you so much and thank you to everybody uh, at the Hub uh, and especially Giovanna for encouraging us to make tonight happen. Welcome of course to our wonderful distinguished panel as well and to you our audience. You're joining us from all over the world and include many colleagues that we've been collaborating with over the course of the past decade. Uh, it's just a pleasure uh, to have you all here uh, this evening. I wish we were back in the long room uh, uh, with a glass of wine in our hands, but sadly, um, Ireland's back in lockdown as uh, many others are around uh, Europe and the world. Uh, but the virtual at least allows us to include colleagues and friends uh, uh, from all over. So as Eve has said, my name is Jane Allmeyer and I had the privilege of being one of the principal investigators on the 1641 Depositions Project. Um, I worked uh, very closely with uh, some other PIs, uh, Mihalo Shokru, uh, John Morrill, Tom Bartlett, uh, and we have the privilege of working with an incredible core team of researchers, and I'm hoping they're in the audience tonight, Annalee Margie, uh, Elaine Murphy, uh, Edda Frankosh, and of course, Aidan Clark, who uh, was just so extraordinary as the general editor of this uh, uh, project. Um, it takes a village 
to do something like this. And I think it'll be impossible to record our thanks to them and the many other collaborators that we had, uh, uh, especially across Trinity uh, with the library. Uh, but we also worked very closely with IBM, and I'm delighted Marie Wallace is with us tonight, uh, and Eniclan, which is a, a, a Dublin SME. Uh, anyway, uh, you're all very, very welcome uh, indeed. Uh, we are here to celebrate um, the launch of the project a decade ago. And I'm going to try and take you back to that memorable evening uh, in the long room uh, when the then president of Ireland, uh, Mary McAleese, honoured us by launching uh, the depositions. But given that the depositions are the most controversial records in Irish history, and given that the depositions have played such an essential role in forming the identity of the loyalist unionist uh, community uh, on the island of Ireland. We felt it was terribly important to have somebody uh, from uh, the, the unionist community there as well. And uh, we were joined that evening by uh, Ian uh, Paisley, Lord Banside, uh, who has sadly passed away. And it was a truly memorable evening. Um, for, for, for many, many, many reasons. But I just want to share with you a, a, a quick vignette before I turn to um, uh, uh, President McAleese. Um, Ian Paisley had come down the day before to see the exhibition uh, that uh, we'd put on in the long room. And he'd looked at the exhibition and he had sent us a copy of his speech uh, uh, in advance. And I had read it and it was very magnanimous. But it ended by quoting uh, at Carson uh, and saying, God save Ulster. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, hmm. Um, anyway, I thought it's a university, freedom of speech. Uh, but his wife, Eileen Paisley, uh, uh, was with him. And she picked up on it and she said, you know, Ian, why not just say God save Ireland? And he looked at her and he looked at me and he didn't say anything. But I said, well, if you do that, you'll bring down you know, the roof in the long run. Uh, it'll be incredible. Anyway, he didn't say anything. And the next evening, um, uh, 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 President McAleese spoke with such passion, uh, uh, followed by Ian Paisley, who also gave uh, his speech word for word. And then he said, and let me conclude by quoting a son of Trinity. Now, at that point, there was this nervous titter through the long room when he mentioned Carson's name. However, he went on to say, you know, God save Ulster. And then he paused and he said, and the other provinces as well. And I think uh, it's the closest he ever came to saying God save Ireland. <laughs> but it certainly made it a night to remember. And I can hear you, Chancellor, laughing there. And I'd like to turn to you now, if I may. You need no introduction. You're the Chancellor of Trinity, and we're so proud to have you as our Chancellor. Uh, and you served as two terms as President of Ireland from 1997 to 2000. 2011. You were our second female president, but the first president from Northern Ireland. And like you, uh, I'm from Belfast. It's a privilege to have you here uh, this evening. I do want to congratulate you on your powerful new book, though. I, I've been really enjoying it um, and would strongly urge everybody uh, to read it. An extraordinary journey. But can I bring you back a decade to 2010, the eve of the royal visit of 2011, and obviously bridge building had been such a major theme for your presidency and on that evening you spoke so passionately about the importance of history and not being 
you know, bowing to the past without being bound by it. And I suppose what I'd like to ask you, uh, Chancellor, a decade on is, what did projects like the 1641 depositions mean to you as president and for us as a nation? Well, they meant a lot to me simply as an Irish woman, as somebody who had grown up in Belfast, but particularly as a president who had seen what happens when we start to unpack history with a greater degree of generosity and much less binary bunkered thinking than we were in a sense reared or formed to have because of you know the ambient politics of our time um i think particularly of the huge work that was done a lot of it also in trinity um on unpacking the true story of um the great war and how that suddenly instead of being a place of tension and sort of binary politics and contempt suddenly it was a place of um it was a place of um friendship and and a greater degree of mutual understanding well 1641 um was very, very similar. But for me in particular, it was a strange journey, Jane, because at least, at least I knew that this First World War had happened. But I think I probably told you this at the time, but I mean, I studied history in Belfast in school. I did A-level history. And I like to think that I'm not, not a history buff, but I've always been interested in history. And I've always read Irish history. Anyway, one of my great friends when I worked in, in, in Queens, when I was um, uh, a director of the Institute of Professional Legal Studies at Queens, bear in mind, I was pretty much in my 40s then. And I'm working in Belfast. And one of my great friends is from the other tradition, as we would say, she's, you know, she's Protestant and she's planter stock. I'm Catholic Gaelic stock. And we're sitting chatting as we always, we were very frank in our conversation, which is kind of unusual in Northern Ireland. And out of the blue, she said to me, God, you're always wittering on about Cromwell and about the famine. You never ever, you never say anything about 1641. And I said, why? Why would, why, what? And she said, well, you know, in 1641, you know, your crowd massacred my crowd. And I said, come on now, Anne. I said, I think if my crowd had ever got around to massacring your crowd, I would have heard about it. And she said, oh, 1641, you murdered the tripe out of us. And I said, well, honestly, first time hearing about it. I said, are you, sure? are you sure we're not sort of moving on into the Cromwellian era and you're getting it all mixed up? No, 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 she said, 1641, fine. So I went to the phone and I phoned up my dear friend, Brian Walker, historian in Queens, and I said, Brian, you better explain to me what on earth happened in 1641. Ah, he said, you've reached that moment of realization. He said, have you? Yeah. He said, well, your crowd rounded it down to about 12,000 dead. And he said, my crowd rounded it up to about 100,000. So what's happened is, it's only a footnote, if even that, as far as your crowd's concerned, and for us, like it's chapters and chapters and chapters of victimhood. So clearly, here we were, you know, 400 almost years later, and she's carrying the burden of that, and I'm not, and I'm not even aware that there's any burden to be carried. So look, that's why it's so important, Jane. You know, if we're, the, the shelf life of the, of the shelf life of history in our country, who am I telling? You know me too well. The shelf life of, of the consequences of history, how it shapes our thinking, and how it changes our attitudes to each other. Even the people who are next door neighbors are shaped into, into shapes which are profoundly, 
regrettably, profoundly ignorant of each other. It's remarkable how we can live cheek by jowl, as I did in Northern Ireland, never hearing of 1641. And yet I lived in a Protestant neighborhood all my life. How did that happen? Um, you know, how did I have to get to my 40s, having studied history to find this out? And, um, and similarly, when we talked about, uh, when my friends and I have discussed Cromwell, I mean, they regarded him as heroic. I didn't exactly regard him as heroic, nor was I educated to regard him as heroic, quite the opposite. So in that binary world, um, the shelf life, Jane, of attitudes and out well, outcomes of history, it just defies imagining how long the shelf life is and how it still shapes our thinking 400 years later. That's why it's important. That's why 1641, the depositions, that's why we are able almost to touch them. And thanks to digitalization, we don't actually have to touch them, but we can get right into that period and we can begin to understand not exactly the truth of it, because I'm not, sure, not always convinced um, about the, uh, the complete honesty of some of the documentation. That's not the point. The point is that it's there. And with the help now of great scholarship, we can unpack it carefully. And importantly, we can unpack it together. And in doing that, I think we begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and maybe more generously more generously and that's what we surely need to create the kind of world that we want to get to. Listen, I, I need to say I couldn't agree with you more and you're so right, history is part of our DNA in Ireland and I think one of the important things about the Depositions Project is actually memory is becoming history and that's a very it gives us that sense of distance because when it's memory it's raw it's emotive uh, but the fact that the depositions were used to stir up anti-catholic hysteria at these very sensitive moments it just shows you how divisive history can be in the wrong hands and it brings me just maybe just a, a quick reflection on your part to think a little bit about here we are in this decade of of, of commemorations uh, the peace process is ongoing in Ireland Ireland, uh, and the role in history in that wider process of reconciliation. You sort of were touching on it there, but you know, in, for, even the fact, the way we, we teach history in our schools, should we be doing more? Um, you know, we've obviously gone a long way uh, at Chancellor, but, but, but my sense is that, you know, we could take it a step further, but, but I'd love to have your sense Absolutely, of Absolutely, Jane, and we have the tools to do that now. Thanks, thankfully, you know, people don't have to be in the same room as each other, they don't have to be in the same classroom to collaborate, to share. I mean, I just think, for example, my dear friend, um, you know, she, she and I and her kids and my kids and, my, and our two husbands, we, we've holidayed together like for about 30 years now. And how, how was it that we kind of missed each other? You know, um, all those years that we, we missed all those opportunities. What if we had been, like she was in her Protestant school, I'd have been in my Catholic school. And that, I think that binary system is going to continue for a while longer anyway. But even if it didn't, don't we really need to have fora in which we can explore these things together and in which our young people can be, first of all, they can, they can look at this documentation. They can learn about, you know, how, things can get exaggerated, how things can get told in a particular way to a purpose um, that maybe, you know, isn't completely consonant with the entire truth and nothing but the truth. Um, and to be able to unpack that 
in a way that threatens nobody, but actually enhances and in some really very profound way respects them, mm -hmm. respects them in this generation. I think that's where we have to get to. We really have to get to collaborative ways of engaging our, our young people. I mean, particularly from young adolescents onwards, if not indeed before, mm -hmm. because my, my grandmother always used to say, Jane, that what's learnt in childhood is engraved on stone. Absolutely. And that scares me to some extent, you know, because in the past, so many people wanted to own our childhoods and, so, and, and they wanted to own them so that they would own us and own our minds and, and, and that we would share only that perspective. So that when we grew up as neighbours, um, we were already halfway to enmity. And no matter how much we liked each other, enjoyed each other's company, no matter, we never, to, to transcend all that has been, uh, it's taken a lot of heft and a lot of momentum and we're not there yet, but God knows we're getting there. In fact, that great day 10 years ago, Jane, the very fact that the Reverend Dr. Ian Paisley, then Lord Banside, I joked him that day and um, just off camera, I sent him, I'm a bit disappointed you didn't call yourself Lord Boyneside, you know, <laughs> and uh, we had a bit of a joke. but. He, the very fact that he was there and that he was so relaxed about it and um, it was itself something almost miraculous. Bear in mind that he had, after a long, you know, a long innings as the great stirrer of sectarianism, um, he becomes, along with, along with um, Martin McGuinness in 2007, they become the government. Um, the first and deputy first minister, uh, very quickly known as the Chuckle Brothers, because they clearly are enjoying each other's company so much. And it seemed to me that in one way that was a wonderful thing, but it was also it was also a sign of what we'd all what we'd all wasted, you know, the time that we had wasted um, in in war with one another, in enmity and in mutual contempt. When with the help of scholars, people like you, people like who have put their heart and soul into the depositions, we can we can stoke, you know, we can stoke history without stoking up the embers of hate. Mm -hmm. And we can actually stoke up history in order that in, in order that we we learn, we grow, we become a little bit more humble about our version of history. We become more, um, I think, more, um, more accepting of the mistakes made by our side, their side, and more forgiving. Mm -hmm. And that is a big, I know it's a big ask, you know, it's a huge ask, and yet it's an important ask because at the end of the day, all this has to be in service of humanity and the humanity on our doorstep. Listen, Chancellor, uh, just thank you for those inspiring words. I look forward to continuing the conversation with you a little bit later in the evening. But you're right, that evening we made history and it was Absolutely. a very, very special event. So, but I want to pick up with our next speaker, actually, something that uh, Mary has just raised. It's, it's the education uh, uh, piece. I'd love to turn to Eamon Darcy. Uh, Eamon, lovely to see you this evening. Uh, Eamon uh, did a, he was one of my graduate students. And, and, and I remember you did a special subject as an undergraduate at U 
using the depositions, went on and did your PhD and published a wonderful book, The Irish Rebellion of 1641. And you're currently uh, teaching at Maynooth and your more recent work looks at early modern communications, political participation and social uh, memory. So it's lovely to have you here, uh, Eamon. And back a decade ago, you were very involved in the depositions project because you actually helped put together the exhibition that the president and Ian Paisley launched that evening. And then you went on uh, uh, to help us develop a wonderful website uh, that was aimed at those uh, young adolescents. I think it was uh, aimed at 12 to 14 year olds. And we were thrilled because we got funding from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade from the Reconciliation Fund to build this. And we did it in partnership with the uh, Northern Ireland Council of Integrated Education. So, you know, that was a really important moment, I think, for all of us to do exactly uh, what Mary uh, was alluding to, take the depositions uh, into the classroom. So I'd love you, Eamon, uh, to reflect back. And, uh, you know, for you, what are your memories of that? What, what were the highlights for you in terms of uh, 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 that, that particular moment in your career? Um. I suppose uh, I was really struck to start, uh, just to begin, or to take up uh, back at that magical evening at the launch of the, 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 the publication of the Ulster Depositions and, and the exhibition. Um, there was a, a line in um, Ian Paisley's speech where he said, every Ulster man should know the date, 23rd of October, as well as their own birthday. And it was so interesting because he was talking about different traditions and how people remember this event. And it gets back to, I suppose, to Professor McAleese's point about, you know, how ingrained memories are uh, uh, among certain communities and how other communities simply do not know. And to me, this, as someone who, who came from, uh, who comes from Drogheda, you know, I, I hadn't actually studied the 1641 rebellion until I was in uh, Trinity College in your classroom, uh, uh, Jane. So I could kind of understand it. To me, this was a, such a, uh, an enigma. 1641 was such an enigma to me. And I really enjoyed the project of um, uh, 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 developing these educational resources because it involves so many institutional partners. I mean, we worked with Alan McCulley in the University of Ulster. We worked with a great team, a history department in uh, Strangford Integrated College. We worked with the Northern Ireland Centre for Integrated Education uh, uh, and Bridge 21 in Trinity College as well. And it was absolutely fantastic you know, trying to trying to pull together these resources that, um, you know, dealt with a, a particularly contentious issue in an appropriate manner, but also in a way in which, if fundamentally, I think we, we were all on the same page. We wanted to do two things. One was to empower young people to engage in, I suppose, shared investigations of the past, to try and understand how these traditions uh, emerged. So it wasn't just simply about, you know, looking at the depositions, but then looking about how they were used or not used in the future. And also fundamentally for me, speaking as a, an early modernist, uh, uh, um, as a, a historian of early modern Ireland, I wanted to enthuse uh, young people about the past, particularly about early modern history. Um, I, I remember been sent a report by uh, the Communities Relations Council, just that we'd got the funding from the Department of Foreign Affairs. And um, there was there was a couple of things in that were interesting, you know, saying parent, basically parents and grandparents 
there with and the local communities were the most important forgers of people's uh, historical memories, which blew my mind. I mean, it, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's obvious, but you know, again, it was confirmed. It was almost set in stone. But then there was another study the same year. And this, this comes as a shock as an early modern historian. Well, it did to me in 2010, which said that, you know, young students in, in, in across Northern Ireland and the UK found anything, any history pre-modern as boring, which of course we didn't want to, we, this, 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 this could not be. So it was about empowering young people to uh, adopt the tools of historians, adopt the same, be able to use the same things that we use, and in order to engage in their own independent investigations or team or, or team investigations of the past, and it was this, it was such a rewarding experience. Yeah, and how did it impact on your career, Eamon? Or did it? You know, did did it set you sort of on a particular path? Um, I'll be honest. I think as part of the project. Uh, it was an eye opener for me. It opened doors is, is how I'd put it. And you know yourself, uh, Jane, as a professor and all, all the other esteemed professors on the panelists and know this, there's nothing as, uh, 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 as, as great for you as when doors are being opened for you, particularly at, at a junior stage. Um, this project was, it was unique in that we had to do so much outreach. You know, we had to do training with teachers. I was literally jettisoned into uh, secondary school classes to see how these uh, resources were being used. But we also had uh, hedge schools, public meetings, town hall meetings. And what I loved about that was it gave me a very healthy respect for how history operates mm -hmm. in today's society. It's not just about what you learn at school. It's also about, you know, what you learn at home, you know, how people study history at university. And I, I mean, I, I don't know whether you remember this, Jane, but one of the head schools we were in was uh, in, in, in Lifford, I think, in, in Donegal. And um, I, we had given our talk about how 1641 was part of this general crisis across Europe. And, you know, there's many sides to be told about the story. And this man came up to us at the end. And he said, I don't care what you've just told me. I know what I believe. And you know what? That was good. It was good for uh, somebody like me and my, and my stage to hear that because, you know, that is true. People have their traditions and they hold on to them. And so it was wonderful in that sense because it gave me a real... Um, sense of how history operates both in, in, an acad in academic circles and kind of broader public uh, second level circles as well. Listen Eamon, lovely to hear you say that and, and to bring back those memories and thank you very much indeed for being here this evening. I want to continue this sort of educational thread and this history thread by actually turning if I may to John Walter who is joining us um, uh, from the UK. John uh, is Emeritus Professor of History uh, from the University of Essex and his research very much focuses on crowds and popular political culture in early modern uh, society. Uh, in, in England. But actually, the wonderful thing about John is that he's working increasingly on Ireland as well. John, you were a fellow in the hub um, and we absolutely loved having you uh, working on the depositions. Uh, so great to have you back this evening uh, with us. I suppose what I'd love you to, to reflect on, if you wouldn't mind, is why the depositions were of any interest to you at all and why they may, may be of importance uh, to scholars who are not, if you want, Irish history specialists. Well, hi Jane, hi everybody else. Um, well, it's interesting following on from uh, Eamon because I started because of the uh, attractiveness of the project for my teaching. Uh, we spend a lot of time telling our students that history only exists in the present 
and in our heads, i.e. it's an interpretive uh, project. And then we get them to go off and read what other historians have already said. And what the 1641 uh, depositions offered me was a chance to absolutely get them face to face with uh, the original record and to think about the otherness of the past. So my starting point was as a teacher, uh, but in the way in which universities work, I became very provoked by some of the statements that were in the books that they that I made them read. And these suggested that the violence that was associated with 1641 was spontaneous, it was uncontrolled, it was sometimes murderous, um, and it was really something done by the lower classes. And I spent all my life <laughs> trying to uh, working on crowds and trying to challenge the idea that we can understand crowds just by thinking of them as mobs. And so I thought, well, I better do, I better do what I'm asking my students to do. And so I uh, started getting up at five in the morning. <laughs> you, th that website is always open. And there I was at five in the morning trying to uh, find my way through uh, the material. And as a result of that, I wrote an article for a volume uh, that you, you and uh, Mihola Shokru in the history department at TCD published. And from then I began to get, get, get more and more interested. Um, and I've gone on to, uh, in the process of writing a series of articles, which tries to take serious uh, the fact, tries to explain violence not to excuse it, to explain violence in terms of the cultural beliefs and attitudes that people actually had. Well, thank you, John. I, 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 and can I just maybe build on that a little bit? And in terms of trying to assess the academic significance of anything, it's challenging at the best mm. of times. Mm. But if you had to try uh, and assess the, the depositions project and the impact that it has ha had over the course of the past decade, wh what would you say? Do you feel it has had an impact? Uh, uh, if so, why? And if not, why not? You know, is there a lot of room mm. for yeah. furlough? For me, sometimes I feel the best is yet to come still. Yeah, and I agree. Um, I mean, I think the, the short and easy answer is to say it's impossible now to quantify, and that's a tribute to the openness and success of the project. Um, it, I think it's important that COVID has denied us access to libraries, it's denied us access to archives. And it's important to remember that one of the real qualities of 1641 is it's free at the point of use, as it were, to use a phrase about the British National Health System. It, it's free at the point of use. And it means that although we know more than 20,000 people have probably used it in the 10 years, um, that's quite extraordinary compared to perhaps, say, the 20 historians who previously were fighting their way either through the appalling microfilm or being allowed access to the original materials. So I think that the, the, the absolute central to its success has been its uh, fact it's free. COVID has, has suggested to us the inequality of access. Mm. Many archives have had to go into commercial partnerships commercial partners obviously need to realize it. Universities find it very difficult to, to, to find the money. Um, I, th I think that you have to think about in terms of digital humanities and why it's important. And it's, imp 
it made is that it was an exemplar and remains an exemplar for its excellence. Mm. Um, I think you could sort of talk about that excellence in terms of the actual quantity of material that it's made available. I mean, it is quite extraordinary that there are thousands of pages, 8,000 depositions, uh, you know, the single most important digital humanities project that allows us to think about political violence uh, mm. before we get to the 20th, mid 20th uh, century. Mm. Um, and that's important in the Irish context for me, because when I started, uh, I hadn't realized, I mean, it's a time for confession, that in 1922, the National Archive <laughs> burnt down. And I tried very hard, you know, to find sort of records in order to tackle that. Here are these thousands of records waiting to be. So it's excellences in terms of quantity. It's excellence mm. in terms of quality. Um, mm. This collaboration, this interdisciplinary collaboration, it meant that this was you know, text that could easily be searched and it, it allows uh, uh, quite easily to do lots of things. I look back on the pioneers, uh, people like Nicholas Canny, uh, like, Ray, like, um, uh, like Aidan Clark, and I kind of marvel how they managed to write books out of what was an incredibly difficult source, which is now easily available through the kind of highly technical aspects of, of this digital humanities project. But I think it's also excellent in terms of quality. It was a very important decision made in setting it up, which was to transcribe the original manuscript. So, I mean, I think that that helps to explain that its impact has exploded and you could look at it in terms of books that are now written you could look at it in terms of conferences that have been held you could look at it in terms of the role it plays in teaching in it plays in sort of the apprenticeship in research i mean the many people who as part of their undergraduate and postgraduate careers have actually started in in uh, in the 1641 depositions sort of project. So all those things I help to help to explain, I think, why it's been so important. Two other things, if I've got time. Oh, please go ahead, John. Firstly, research councils spend a lot of time, quite rightly, saying that they want to promote interdisciplinarity. And absolutely, it is at the heart of the 1641 project. It was at the heart of it when it was set up, but it's at the heart of it now when we are having conversations as a group of scholars we're not simply talking within our own narrow disciplines, we're talking to, uh, as a historian, I'm talking to literary scholars, to linguists. I'm interested in learning about trauma and therefore I'm wanting to know about, about social psychology. There are whole sets of ways in which geographers, now climatologists, I mean, all the time, I'm learning uh, new things from it. So I think it's interdisciplinarity helps to explain why it's so uh, important. And I think that in turn leads on to the fact that there were several attempts to, as I understand it, to try to get the 1641 depositions into public use. Mm. And it's, it's rather neat, I think, that it is coincided with the development of new histories. Yeah. And one can now look at the work that's being done and see if we take something that might be thought to be difficult, like the history of emotions. Mm. You know, there it's sitting there. I mean, this the cultural trauma that it's represented. You know, we now have sort of 
I think, broken down the polemical propagandist use, the exaggerated numbers that were killed. But nonetheless, there was real violence. People died, people suffered, people witnessed it. And in thinking about that around the issues of trauma. So it's coincided with new histories, which I think is very important. Because so many women were involved in this project, the 1641 project, i.e. at the time, feminist historians were early users of this material, early writers about it. There's a lot more, your own work on widows, there's a lot more work uh, that can be done. And what I think is exciting, and what I think guarantees that people go on using it, is that we've in some ways only just scratched the surface. If we move away from trying to explain and count how many people were killed, mm. then we look at something like, there are far more depositions about theft. They offer us extraordinary lists of people's possessions. And if we become interested in the material culture, past societies, then we can find that out. If we want to move away from grand political histories to thinking about the lived experience, not of the minority, but the majority, then there are lots of little stories mm. caught, up, caught up in the depositions project. So I think for all those reasons, uh, there is kind of much yet still to be done and as I started by saying, I think its impact is incalculable. Thank you very much, John. Uh, 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 that's just so good to hear. And you're absolutely right. This represented the third attempt to publish the depositions. <laughs> the outbreak of the Second World War, Kaibosh, the yeah. first attempt. Yeah. The outbreak of the Troubles in Northern Ireland in 1968, Kaibosh, the second attempt. And it was only when Ireland was at peace that we actually could embark. And obviously, third time lucky, as it, <laughs> turned, uh, as it turns out. Uh, so thank you very, very much, John. Um, as John's already said as well, though, it's very, very interdisciplinary. And it's that interdisciplinarity I'd like to turn to now. Because in addition to history, literature, geography, physics, um, archives, conservation, mathematics, computer science. I mean, there's so many disciplines that uh, uh, contributed to, uh, to, to this project. And I, I wanted to say a word about some of the mathematicians that we worked with on a sister project, something that came out of this. There were mathematicians at the University uh, of Sofia in, in, in Bulgaria who were working with the normalization of the text. And I remember uh, this gentleman saying, you know, Jane, basically there is no problem that mathematics cannot solve. Um, and he was talking about, of course, the algorithms uh, uh, that he was developing to help normalize uh, the language of the 1641 depositions. And anybody who has looked at the depositions will understand that the language is very inconsistent. Uh, there's not, you know, the grammar, the spelling, the syntax, uh, uh, everything is is very messy or dirty uh, in the words of a computer scientist um, and it's actually the the dirty data that that, that brings me to our, our next uh, uh, speaker um, who uh, has been involved with the depositions project from the very very beginning and it's my great pleasure to uh, uh, introduce Vinnie Wade who along with uh, Owen Conlon and the late Shay Lawless, who we miss every day, uh, uh, who passed away on Everest. Um, uh, anyway, he's with us here in spirit tonight. But, but, but Vinny, you were involved in the depositions. Um, uh, you're currently the uh, director of the ADAPT Center for Digital uh, Media Technology, and you hold the chair of computer science in our own school of computer science. And you played a key role 
in the project because you um, not only uh, embraced it with real enthusiasm, but you helped to, well, you introduced us to IBM, but you were the interlocutor there uh, uh, as well. I was going to say the translator, because to begin with, we just didn't even speak the same language. Uh, anyway, Vinny, I'd love you to comment, uh, if, you, if you would, on the importance of the depositions project from your perspective as a computer science and, and from sort of the, the technologies involved. Sure, Jane. Thanks, thanks for that. I mean, it is a classic uh, transdisciplinary uh, challenge. Um, you know, I, I, we were working together on something else and talking about art, in fact, and you mentioned that the, this project and I went, oh great, so what metadata are you using? And, and your reaction was classic, meta what? And, and I kind of went, I totally began to realize that actually we had these terrific uh, historians and uh, transcribers looking at this text and there was an opportunity to, to gather so much more information than just what was written on the page. Um, and, and as we began to talk and as we began to, to actually look at the text, I knew nothing about them before. I mean, to, uh, you know, uh, I was amazed um, and I had a, at the time a, a young postdoc with me, uh, Shay Lawless, who, who went on to become a superb professor and as we said, uh, one of the people who really did drive the, the, the underlying work here and owned with Owen's help, Owen Collins as well, who's now a professor as well in, in computer science. But when we began to look at it, we began to say, our first thing was, let's write some tools so that we gain more than just the image and, and the transcriptions. Because these historians were going to be intimate with this text for three years. Could we not get more from this? Could we not build up this much richer um, fabric in the documentation and in the connections? And this is at the same time as semantic web. This is the same time of, of, of really beginning to look at knowledge graphs in a different way. Um, and, and the opportunity for us was, was to have this effectively new language because there, there isn't any spelling in those days. Uh, I, don't, we, we, I think Jay worked out how many, how many ways is there to spell O'Neill. You wouldn't have thought that. Um, the connections between the semantics and the, and the events and the people and the, 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 the um, different ways in which the same event got described in different ways with different people and so forth and how they could be all connected. That became fascinating from, from a computer science perspective, but also from a historical perspective, because then you could begin to see these graphs. But then we began to, to, to work with the historians who, and then there was a word that, that, that was used earlier, um, that it's not just about the technology extracting the, uh, the meaning and, and, and presenting it. Actually, what you want to do is empower the historians to do what they need to do to really examine. The, and what we began to, as we began to look at the interfaces and, and, and building up these semantic models was to be able to allow them to empower um, the individuals to look at it. And that was in the same way then look at how different types of people need to be empowered because we were also developing at the same time the back ends for the children, the school kids, and how they were going to and how they could navigate the stories and navigate the, 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 the narratives within, the, within the, the content and be able to build up these rich pictures and be able to build up their understanding. And then the other part was we want to do is we want to be able to provide a way in which we, they might be able to contribute, you know, connect things together. So you, you're no longer just building on the, the resources and the connections of knowledge within the resources, but you're building up then the layers of understanding about that. And that's created a whole community around 
the depositions. Um, that's, that, that's been absolutely fascinating work. I suppose the other challenge that we, we came across and, and we, you know, being classic computer scientists and working with historians, we, we, start, we looked for standards, but there weren't always standards where we wanted them <laughs> and, and, and which ones we chose. And then the other problem, and you've come across this many, many times, is sustainability. How do you sustain these? Uh, because having built the innovations and having built the original uh, platforms, you know, I'm, I'm used to in technology, like everything has a half-life of less than five years, you know, frequently even less, in my area, even smaller than that in, in AI. So we now had a situation where we needed to protect something for perpetuity, but we needed to use the latest technology on it. And, 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 and this launch of the website, uh, you know, is the user interface hasn't changed so much because we wanted to, to, to allow the, the, the end user we're using at the moment to, to have that freedom of, of use. But the back end had to change because all the technologies had changed, but also because the research that's going to go on further, you know, to what Chancellor McAleese said, there's going to be building on this for years to come. And, and I think that's the, the most exciting part about this is to be able to have it so that it becomes something which is much more uh, than just the documents themselves, but the ability for everyone to contribute to the discussion around the documents and to take that yoke of history off us and see, and see what lies beneath. Absolutely, Vinny. And of course, as historians, the only way of sustaining something like this is to see the printed volumes. So we're, all, we're thrilled now these 12 volumes have come out. And obviously, the Irish Manuscripts Commission have done an extraordinary job with it because the digital environment is so fragile and you invest a million euro and X years of your life in something, you want it to be around in 100 years time. So it's a, it really is a real uh, uh, concern for us. Now, Vinny, you and I continue to collaborate, continue to work together. We're obviously very fortunate at Backlash February to get a, a wonderful uh, Marie Curie co-fund um, that's called Human Plus that was ranked I guess second in Europe um, and is going to allow us to recruit 18 postdoctoral fellows uh, for 20, each for 24 months to work on a range of projects that put the human at the center of technological uh, innovation. To, to my mind, Vinny, actually 1641 was the beginning of Human Plus, but I don't know if you want to just give a quick shout out for Human Plus, uh, 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 just it, since I've mentioned it. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it, it is exactly that. It, it, it's to build on this transdisciplinarity um, in the humanities and technology. I mean, as I said, I lead the ADAPT Centre, the SFI Centre for Digital Media and AI. And with your leading at the time of, of, of the Long Room Hub, it was a real opportunity to bring the giants of computer science and humanities and arts together to, to actually look at a problem which, I mean, we wrote this before COVID-19 pandemic, but actually, you know, to, even then we could see that we were being fast forwarded into this physical digital world where the two are just fused together. Um, and there's a time where you feel that actually the technology is more and more rushing ahead which it has to do, and which is that in itself is not a problem. But there's a time when you actually need to have a look and say, well, what does this mean for humanity? How does this put the human in the center? And so we, we put together this proposal of say, let's place the human at the center of technology innovation for the long-term betterment of society. And then let's ask the questions that others aren't asking, which are, what exactly does this mean? And when we began to, to look at the program, we, we said, well, what we really need is to have it from both sides. 
So we have to have questions which come from the humanities, but which are uh, supported by the engineering and computer science. We need to have the questions coming from computer science and engineering, but supported by the insights and the uh, perspective of humanities. So this program is, 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 is so different to a lot, so many others, where it's usually a, a you know, Marie Curie is, is, is like the top fellowships that are available in Europe. And we have 18 of them going to be coming to Ireland. And each one of them will be supported by a team of academics who come from both sides looking at the issues. And the issues we're kind of looking at from ethics and data governance uh, for frameworks for allowing privacy and ensuring um, uh, empowerment, real empowerment, through to looking at corporate and how you actually look at language and, and whether it be social media, whether it be uh, written uh, corpus, whether it be uh, multimedia, multimedia or multimodal, or, or looking at digital engagement. I mean, what does it mean to interact with an avatar? I mean, what does it mean to have a digital self? What, what does identity mean in, this, in these situations? So looking at those deep issues, looking from the humanities perspective and the technology together, but coming from two different sides becomes really, really important. And that's where real innovation happens. That, that's where discoveries, it's when ideas crack off each other and spark that the ideas come. So we're really excited about it. We're, we're launching it in, in, within the next three or four weeks. Um, and you know, the first wave of fellows will be in place in the middle of next year, toward the end of next year. Uh, the academics are really excited about it because it's an opportunity. But the other part that makes it so much better is that we've actually opened up to enterprise, all enterprise, whether it be industry, whether it be public galleries, the governments or whatever, to, to partake in this, to, to, to be co-creators in these ideas, in these questions, and then to be able to be part of it. And we're even allowing opportunities for the fellows to be embedded within these organizations uh, as part of a, a part of that, that experience. Um, as I said, it, 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 is, it is a new model. Uh, it is, uh, it, it did come second in Europe as the, as one of the top proposals in its space. Um, and it's, it offers a huge opportunity to, to really invent the future, but invent it in a more rounded, balanced way. Listen, Finney, thank you so much. Uh, and that mention of enterprise uh, uh, takes us actually to uh, Marie Wallace uh, from IBM, who was our collaborator. Good evening, Marie. Lovely to see you uh, this evening. Uh, you're a data strategist for IBM Health. Uh, you led IBM Languageware, and that's where we collaborated uh, with you in the context of 1641. And it's really uh, fantastic to see you here tonight because I've many happy memories of uh, uh, working together with you and DJ McCluskey and your whole team at IBM and introducing us into the worlds of oh, natural language processing and social network analysis and dirty data and all of it. Anyway, uh, uh, Mary, I I'm just curious from your perspective in IBM, what was the you know, what, I was going to say, what was the attraction of working uh, with these historians who, to begin with, we didn't even speak the same language? Um, you know, wh why? <laughs> so, um, so I think there's a couple of different reasons. One is, um, so IBM has a long history of working in, in, in text analysis, in, in, in data analysis, um, and actually a long history in technology, but mainly in the enterprise space. Um, and back about obviously 12 years ago now, I guess, or 13 years ago when we started talking, um, we think of social networks now and everybody analyzes them, but at the time they were still relatively new. And we were starting to move towards models of analyzing um, human speak, social network and social network data, 
we were looking more at um, consumers as opposed to the enterprise. And, um, and there was a couple of things that were key to that. One is, is that if you look at something like social media, the data is fundamentally not precise. So if you think about the early days of text analysis, you have likes of Google um, search indexes, and it's all on structured data, semi-structured data or documents. Whereas social networks is really small little you know, pieces of data with no punctuation, bad spelling, you know, no casing, everything that the 1641 depositions data was. So it wasn't social network data, but very similar in characteristic. It was inconsistent, it was dirty, no proper spellings, no case, no punctuation. So it presented very similar challenges when we were looking to analyze social data and analyzing 1641. So that was one aspect of it. Was, it was a really, really big challenge from a text analysis standpoint. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was interesting and, and Vinny touched on this was this notion of social network analysis because the other aspect as well is understanding the, the connections between people. And, and, and that's what the 1641 depositions is fundamentally, it's a massive big network, be it the relationships between, you know, the, 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 the person who was given the deposition, the people they mentioned in the deposition, the relationships between those people, relationship between location, between their jobs, their, you know, so there's all, even the dates, even being able to figure out where, like, there's cases of somebody supposedly did something on this date, but another deposition said they were 100 miles away. There was, there's, so you could start to look at the network and, and find logical flaws in the network. So it presented some really interesting um, natural language processing and analytics challenges, which is one thing. The second thing though, that I think is probably even more important that it relates to us being so different, was that we were beginning to realize at that stage that in order to understand natural language and specifically spoken language or, or social net networks, you, you needed to realize that there was a lot of stuff that's encoded in the actual, so the domain knowledge is critical to understanding this. And the domain knowledge doesn't reside with technology people. It doesn't reside with programmers. It resides with, with domain specialists and the historians were the perfect scenario because you know, we had worked with domain specialists before like maybe doctors and they're not fans of technology, but they're, they're experts compared to historians. They really did not like the technology particularly. So it was a wonderful opportunity for us to look at ways that we could interact as technology people to capture the knowledge that these specialists have, these historians, and then apply that to analyzing the text. So I think it gave us both complex data and it also gave us a complex um, set of people that we had to work with in order to bring it all together. And that was kind of think, the big thing that was so interesting. And Marie, can I just say, in terms of the role of the humanities in technological innovation today, do you see that as being something that, you know, obviously we could just talking about human plus there, but from your perspective in IBM, does that continue to be something that you think is important? Absolutely, because if we're looking to build technology for the consumer, for the end user, you, you need to fundamentally understand what it is you're building. I mean, we only need to look at the, at the world today, looking at social media, looking at the breakdown in dialogue within politics. We, we only need to look at that to realize we have fundamentally done something wrong in the technology space. We have built stuff without fundamentally understanding the impact that it's going to have, not just on the individuals, but on society as a whole. We were talking about this 13 years ago. We were predicting that we're going to have societal breakdown because it was obvious the writing was on the wall. And I think the problem is, as technology people, we love the latest gadgets and we're so focused on doing something cool that we don't necessarily think about the impact that's going to have on society. And this is where I think technology and the humanists need to work together much, much, much more closely than they have been in the past and than they are today. Brilliant, Marie. Thank you so much.
for being here this evening. And, and obviously we look forward to hoping to con continue to work with you in the context of, of Human Plus. Um, I actually think this relationship with enterprise has helped us enormously when we went on to apply for other uh, big European uh, grants uh, uh, and funding. Um, and I just want to take a moment to thank our funders um, who invested probably over the course of, of the last decade about 5 million euro in the main depositions project and all of the other related projects uh, that it spawned, that was the European Commission, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Urchis, the Irish Research Council for the Humanities and Social Sciences, which is now the Irish Research Council, and the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Now, just to say, I wasn't chair of the IRC back then, Maurice Brick was, and I always said to Maurice Brick at the time, the IRC HSS invested a quarter of a million, but actually it was the HRC that, that put in the vast uh, uh, majority of funding that made the 1641 Depositions uh, project happen. So it's a particular uh, pleasure uh, to uh, uh, have uh, Andrew Thompson with us this evening. And I appreciate, uh, Andrew, you weren't head of the AHRC uh, back in the day, but you went on to become head of the AHRC and you are currently the UKRI uh, champion for the, oh, I have to say this, 1.5 billion pound Global Challenges Research Fund. Wow, that's a significant uh, chunk of change. But you're also Professor of Global Imperial History at uh, Oxford. Delighted that you're with us here uh, uh, this evening, Andrew. Um, and I'd love you, obviously, if, if, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just to reflect a little bit on the fact that even though it didn't happen on your watch, you've been incredibly supportive of promoting other digital humanities projects and the creative technologies generally. And I'd like you to maybe just uh, tell us why. Well, thank you for having me. And it's been absolutely wonderful to listen to um, the history of the project, as it were, uh, and all the exciting uh, reflections that have been shared from its participants, Jane. Mm. I mean, I suppose the short answer to your question is that I really do believe that this is the future of humanities or a very big part of mm. the humanities future. It's um, the way in which the digital can help us to ambitiously explore fundamental questions of humanity and, and what it means to be human. And to explore those questions, I think as 6041, the Depositions Project shows, that size and ambition and scale that we hadn't perhaps previously even imagined was, was possible. So this is about, I think, harnessing a digital technological revolution that we're all living through in all of its different manifestations, the, the power of computing, the possibilities of data science and artificial intelligence, the, the new experiences through augmented and, and virtual and mixed sort of reality. And I think it's doing that as 1641 shows to be able to assemble and organize and interrogate data in exciting and, and innovative and sort of productively different ways. And I thought Vinnie put it very well just a few minutes ago when he said, you know, digital technology can empower us as scholars. It can empower us to, to build pictures of the past which are richer and bigger and more layered and more nuanced. Um, and um, so I think that's part of the reason, but I'd also say that, you know, I think digital humanities has, um, 
or this was always my line at the uh, Arts Humanities Research Council. As you, as you rightly said, I've been sort of freed of that sort of responsibility recently. But um, I used to say, talking to government, um, that there are three imperatives here. One of them is an intellectual imperative, clearly. I think a number of participants so far have referred to the fact that some of the most exciting discoveries are taking place at the interface of disciplines and sometimes, if I may, quite distant disciplines, you know, humanities to computing sciences, not just sort of near neighbours. So I think there's an intellectual imperative around digital humanities. I think there's certainly an economic imperative. Uh, we often fight shy of that as humanities scholars, but the heritage, experience, tourist economy, call it what you will, is absolutely powered by our cultural and creative industries and the arts and humanities research that feed them. But I think my final remark would be that there really is a very big societal imperative here. We are still living through a pandemic. We're not the um, first people in human history to be doing that. But we're finding that our culture is the thing that holds us together, whether it's libraries or museums or galleries or heritage sites. It's culture in all its forms that it's been vital up and down the country for, I think, giving us a perspective on what we're living through at the moment it's what we're falling back on and it's what's helping to keep us going and I, I i was really taken i think listening to the previous speakers um and making connections i think from um the depositions project to what we're witnessing in the world at the moment um which is having to deal with difficult and divided and contested histories. I, I think we're seeing that through Windrush and Black Lives Matter and what I would call the great statue reckoning of 2020, that our humanity really depends on our ability to tell clear and inspirational stories about the past, to get at the truth of our history, even when that's difficult for us, listening to stories that we don't necessarily want to hear. And it seems to me that the, at the intersection of new computing technologies and advanced historical methodology. Uh, the 1641 project is really a powerful testimony to how history can be positively and productively brought into the public domain. Thank you, Andrew. I don't want to lower the tone of the conversation by mentioning Brexit, but, but obviously I'm very conscious of the great work that you've been doing in the context of UKRI and the HRC. And obviously we've been doing at this end uh, from the uh, IRC, um, SFI, HRB end to try and strengthen East-West relationships as well as North-South ones. But uh, I was particularly delighted when the HRC and the IRC got together to fund a range of digital humanities uh, projects uh, uh, very recently those were announced. In terms of the future, um, uh, uh, obviously projects like these do an awful lot to bind uh, our uh, communities, our researchers together and the more of them uh, we could do from our perspective, uh, speaking here in, in Dublin, the better. But what about it from your perspective? Uh, how important are these sorts of collaborations from the UK's perspective? Yes, I, I mean, I'm not sure, Jane, there's ever been an occasion where you and I have got together and you haven't mentioned the B words to me. But um, look, international collaboration is hardwired into what we do as scholars and particularly as humanities scholars. I think as humanities scholars, we 
if I may, we deal in the currency of the global. The type of knowledge we, we produce and we represent seeks to address global questions and global challenges. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, how do we all live in more diverse and inclusive and multicultural societies? Uh, Me Too, you know, how do we speak to issues of gender equality or extinction rebellion, you know, the future of our climate? All of these things require global thinking and a global response. And I think as Chancellor McAleese said, it, it is a time, if ever there was a time, for non-bunkered, non-binary and non-partisan thinking. And that, I think that thinking can only truly flower and flourish um, uh, when we work together globally as scholars and when we collaborate internationally. Um, I think one perspective I would have on Brexit is that multilateral research programmes like the Horizon programme is a vitally important part of that. And the UK's stated policy is to want to fully associate to Horizon Europe. But they're not the only part of it, as you say. And bilateral collaborations are um, hugely important too. And um, under my tenure as the executive chair of HRC, we had a very important bilateral collaboration with the DFG in Germany but also with the Irish Research Council. And I, I was really struck, and I think you were struck as well, the appetite of our researchers for that sort of joint programming and funding. Those calls were massively oversubscribed with high quality applications. And the joint AHRC Irish Research Council Digital Humanities Networking Awards, I think we're both very proud that we've got 12 projects, 18 universities involved, 24 PIs and co-Is, looking at things like the intersection of sort of feminism and digital technology and the humanities, or how do you develop a digital framework for a medieval Gaelic world, or how do we open um, archives to young filmmakers using the digital, uh, the digital technology to communicate hidden archaeology, um, and something I think on um, how we use the internet as a way of making more accessible dance performance. Um, lots of really exciting projects and I'm sure those projects will not be the same as a result of the fact that they're being pursued as transnational sort of research collaborations. So you know I think we're in the business as humanities scholars of international collaboration and, and I really do hope uh, and believe actually that geopolitical events like Brexit I just don't think will ever be strong enough to to knock us off that stride. Absolutely, what a great uh, uh, note to uh, uh, end. Uh, thank you very much in, indeed, um, uh, Andrew. And we, we have with us in the audience this evening, many colleagues from the UK. Uh, 1641, obviously we collaborate with anybody who wants to collaborate with us, but we've got a fabulous re working relationship with the Civil War Petitions Project and many others. And we look forward to continuing any form of collaboration. Um, I want to, begin to draw the evening uh, uh, to a close. Um, obviously, we have just launched a, a, a revamped website. Um, the old one was on the proverbial ventilator in the ICU. Uh, and thanks to uh, support from ADAPT, uh, Vinny and his colleagues from uh, Linda Doyle, our, uh, she was Dean of Research from our librarian, Helen Shenton, um, and Arlene Healy uh, and the history department, we uh, found some money to revamp the website because people get very upset when it, 
crashes and it was about to die folks but now it's got a new lease of life and um, it will be part of the uh, library's collections going forward uh, so it will be sustained as part of the library's digital archive um, and then of course we've got these amazing volumes published by the Ang uh, Irish Manuscripts Commission and a big thanks again to James McGuire, John McCafferty and above all um, uh, Kathy Hayes and Aidan Clark. I mean these volumes are fantastic. You can get all 12 for Christmas at a, a snip 495 euro. Uh, now, I, I've got them on the floor here. I won't hold them up because you, you need to be a weightlifter uh, to lift them all. But a huge, huge thank you to everybody who has made the volumes uh, uh, possible as well. Um, I do want to give, however, the final word to uh, our Chancellor, uh, uh, Mary McAleese, because the depositions are so much more than the digital. They're about trauma, they're about our heritage, they're about our identity, they're about how we remember, how we forget, how we can reconcile. And Mary, uh, uh, as we uh, are at this very historic moment, uh, Brexit uh, you know, could threaten the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. We've got populist and right-wing uh, movements destabling societies in the UK, Europe, uh, the US and around the world. Um, how do we see the public and policymakers engaging with the arts and humanities uh, as we work to build the world that we all want to live in? I don't know if you have just uh, that sort of inspiring message uh, uh, on which we could, we could close our conversation this evening. Well, one of the great attributes of, I think, of the human person is the capacity to change and to be changed by persuasion. That, I think, is one of the great, um, uh, both the challenges and also the opportunities of the, um, of the 1641 depositions and the way in which now they have, they're just so available. Um, not only are they available, but they're available um, with that kind of support that will help us to give us the language to interrogate them safely so they don't become you know, just another opportunity for having a go at one another, as it were, but rather an opportunity for really pursuing um, in a scholarly way, um, the kind of, and, and filling and refueling ourselves with the kind of information that, that lifts us um, into, I think the, the area that Andrew was talking about there earlier, you know, that, that area of culture um, that is, uh, that's elegant, um, that's about lifting the human person, that's about um, inspiring us. And I think the human person, I think one of the things that we've learned through the peace process, for example, and indeed the very fact that the Reverend Dr. Ian Paisley was there that day 10 years ago, talks about so profoundly about our capacity for really, really deep change. But you need the catalysts and you, the historians, and the interdisciplinary team that's gathered around this phenomenal project are part of that process of that catalyst. We're also very lucky. I mean, the, the young people that are educated nowadays, um, the, the opportunities they have, the technology, the technical skills they have, the critical skills they have, um, so much better than in, than in the days whenever I went to school. Um, and we have a we have such an educated cohort now it seems to me that that is we have to keep believing that um that the impulse towards human decency 
um, will always win out in the end. Um, it's not a straight line. I used to think when I was a ghost youngster, you know, that it was going to be a straight line. It's not a straight line. So you always have to stand your ground and fight your battle. But thankfully, we've got such a great armory now. We've got such a wonderful armory of, of equipment and skill and um, just such and also we have we have teams now that never used to be working so collaboratively and so well together and you know every time they're stitched together that stitching get makes us all stronger so yeah i look we've brexit and we've COVID. um we're going to get over both of them you know um and brexit breaks my heart uh, because I thought the European Union, and, and I still believe the European Union was one of the greatest adventures in human decency since the beginning of time, um, not to put, you know, not to over-exaggerate it, um, and to, to walk away from it just seems to me such a loss to a, new to a young generation who won't realise for a while what it is they've lost until it's gone. But um, on the other hand, when I look at what we have accomplished by doing what you've done, by reinterrogating history, the fact that we were able to bring Her Majesty the Queen to Ireland in 2011, that we were able to bring Paisley to Dublin to the Long Room in, in, you know, in 2010, um, that we were able to go to Messine and share together in 1998 um, um, a celebration, a commemoration of all the Irishmen who had given their lives or made sacrifices of their lives in the cause of the Great War, and that we could do that without coming. In order to do it properly, we had to come out of our bunkers, and in coming out of our bunkers, we looked behind us and they were gone. So it seems to me that um, that's that's why that's why people like you do what you do. That's why we do what we do. I just wish, I just wish, Jane, that I was an undergraduate history student again. Um, <laughs> Gosh, what a fantastic, <laughs> exciting time to be an undergraduate history student. Oh, I give anything. Thank you. I mean, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, the panel. It's been an absolutely inspiring evening. And thank you very much indeed, The Hub, for uh, 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 making it possible. Eve, back to you. Thank you very much, Jane. And, and thank you, Chancellor McAleese, for that really moving endorsement of the 1641 project, but also for your genuinely encouraging words about the value of what we do in the humanities, not only at Trinity, but across all our partner universities. Uh, we're honoured to have had you uh, with us this evening and honoured to have had all our special guest speakers, Eamon, Marie, Andrew, John and Vinnie. I think everyone will have been struck by the passion with which you've all spoken tonight uh, from your different perspectives on topics that in fact have gone well beyond the 1641 depositions project. I've learned a huge amount and been really inspired. Uh, and I'm delighted to say we've had a terrific audience online and a very engaged audience, as you will see uh, from the comments that are already coming through on Twitter. Uh, to those of you who have been listening, not only in Ireland, uh, but across the world, thank you for joining us. But let's keep these conversations going. Come back again for our forthcoming events. Uh, we've got uh, our next panel discussion in our uh, signature hub behind the headlines series. And that's on 29th of October at 7 p.m. Of course, in advance of the US election, we're going to be asking the question, is there still an American dream? Um, so please tune in for that. And on Monday, the 2nd of November at 
four o'clock, we're going to be revisiting another extraordinary Irish history digitizing initiative uh, that was mentioned earlier. This is the Beyond 2022 project, which will be looking this time at recovering records for early modern history. You'll see details on the screen in the chat function or have a look at the Trinity Longham Hub website uh, for all of our events. For now, my thanks again to the Hub team who put this evening's showcase together, brilliantly as always. Thanks again to our guests for giving up their time and their energy this evening. And thanks to all of you, uh, wherever you're joining us from. We hope to see you again very soon. Stay well, everyone, and a very good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.